I think most everyone knows that this past summer, Katie and I went to Yosemite National Park um, on vacation. We spent um, about, I don't know, was it like 10 days there, uh, not just in Yosemite, but around California. And we had one big hike that we wanted to do. We wanted to hike Half Dome, that's what it's called. And it's 14 miles round trip, 5,000 foot elevation gain, and we, it was gonna take around 12 hours to complete. And so we get there into Yosemite National Park, and we're going on to the, all these other trails, and it seems like the view those trails always was showing us was Half Dome. There was this huge, Thing that we were going to be climbing up and it was going to take us 12 hours to climb up and it seemed like all the trails we were going on that was kind of like oh this is this is what you're looking at and it's like wow that's huge and it looks awesome but it seemed like everywhere we went that was what we were seeing and on the day of our hike we left at 6 a.m. Um, with food and water packed for the day and even a water filtration system to like filter more water um, in the river water and we hiked past two waterfalls we hope to see a bear and now here's my theory on Yosemite they say there's bears everywhere, so keep all your food hidden, keep it in these bear lockers. But we didn't see a single bear there, even though they promised that there would be bears and we had to protect our food. So I kind of think it's like propaganda. So if you keep the park clean, you know, keep your stuff, you know, locked up so the bears don't get it, sure. I don't think there's bears. I don't know. There are bears, but uh, anyway. But we trained all summer for this. We jogged up the high school bleachers, did like these strength workouts. We hiked um, other trails that were shorter. And, but as we're going up around mile five, we start to feel tired. Um, and all of a sudden this girl, she's like in her early 20s, she comes striding by us. She's going like twice as fast as us, uh, but looks like she's working half as hard. And so we're like, wow, well that's kind of discouraging. And she's dude, like we're, oh gosh. And she's not, not a bead of sweat on her. Um, but about a mile later, she is all of a sudden stopped. She says, hey, can I kind of be with you guys? I'm um, a little afraid of the bears around here. She fell for the propaganda, but we didn't. We're sure you can be with us to watch out for the bears. And so she hiked with us the rest of the way. There was about two miles remaining. And eventually we started to get hope close to Half Dome, which looks exactly like it sounds. It's like this dome of rock, and it's like just the half of it. It's like a full dome, but it's like this half dome of rock. And so we're getting up to it. We're like, wow, that's pretty intimidating. And people kind of look like ants as they're going up there. And we get to the base of it. And it's just like, the angle is like that. It's like a 45 degree angle most of the time. But there's sometimes when it's like a 60 degree angle. And the only way to get up it, there's like these um, metal posts and there's cables running through them. And so on either side of it, you're kind of like you holding on to these uh, metal cables as you're trying to, as you're going up it. Because if you just try to go up that angle um, with nothing to hold on to, you'll be slipping and sliding. And we had good boots, but we were still slipping and sliding. And like every time there was a post, there was a, a board um, between them so you could stop and rest for a bit. So we're going up, we're looking at this and seeing people go up and we're just like, oh my gosh, are we able to do this? We've gone all these six miles and now we're at the base of this thing and we're like, can we complete this journey to the top? And today as we continue to prepare for Easter, we're in our series called For You because Jesus says that everything he goes through in these final three chapters of the gospel according to Luke was for you. Last week we learned that he was preparing to die and he was preparing to die for you, for us, for each of us. And this week, Jesus is betrayed and arrested and he's denied and he's mocked and it's for you. And so you can kind of, if you look at your bulletin, there's a, I have the title of every sermon at the top there and you can just kind of put for you after each one of these titles that we're going through um, this month. He goes through all this um, for each of us. And the path, passage we're looking at today is all about staying on the path and completing the journey. All week, Jesus has had his own half dome 
in view. As he entered Jerusalem, and all week, that's the view he's seeing. He's seeing this big thing that he's going to have to eventually climb up. And now, as we saw last week and, and this week, he's standing at the base of it, and he's feeling the pressure to turn back and to, to not climb this. He's like, can, am I able to do this? And he's feeling this temptation to leave the path that God wants him on. And he knows his disciples are going to feel that same temptation as well. And so he tells them, we need to go to, to God in prayer. We need to go to him and find our strength in him. Just complete this sentence for me. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. But what happens when the going gets tough and you don't feel very tough? What if when the going gets tough, you feel the opposite of tough? What if you don't feel tough at all? And the big question this passage answers is this. When the going gets tough, what should the weak do? When the going gets tough, what should the weak do? Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But what if you're weak? So when the going gets tough, what should the weak do? We're going to break this passage into two parts. One's going to look at Jesus, and one's going to look at Peter. And so we're going to ask, what, when the going gets tough, what does Jesus do? When the going gets tough, what does Peter do? We'll start by focusing on Jesus. All week in Jerusalem, Jesus has had his half dome in view. You know, the half dome isn't there, but you know, his half dome is the cross. He knows he's going to suffer, and he knows he's going to die, and he's going to do it to rescue others from death. So he enters Jerusalem triumphantly on a Sunday, um, but by Wednesday, Judas betrays him, and now the religious leaders have a way that they can get Jesus out of the picture. They've been plotting to get rid of Jesus from the beginning, so now they have a way to get him out. And then on Thursday, Jesus gathers his closest disciples together to celebrate the Passover. And during this ritual meal, they remember how God rescued them 1,400 years earlier. But Jesus says, a new rescue is going to happen. It's going to happen through my death. And that brings us to our passage for today. After the Passover, Jesus leads his disciples out to the Mount of Olives uh, in the dark of night. And Matthew and Mark, two other authors in the Bible who tell the story, say that he actually leads them to a specific place. Well, our passage says that too. He says when he got to the place, the place he gets to is the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a grove of olive trees that actually still exists today. Um, you can go there, and because olive trees uh, live for so long, some of those olive trees are the same olive trees that were there um, when Jesus went to this garden. And they're, they're crazy-looking trees. You should just Google Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll see these crazy-looking old trees. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes to God in prayer, and he exhorts his disciples, you, need to, you guys need to go to God in prayer as well, because Jesus knows that the going is about to get tough. He's standing at the base of Half Dome, his Half Dome, and he knows the disciples are going to be tempted to turn back. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus told them during the Passover meal that Satan was going to tempt all of them to abandon him, to abandon faith in him, to abandon following him. And Jesus is standing at the base of this thing. He's like, I know this is going to get tough. And he says, we need to go to God in prayer. So Jesus, he goes a stone's throw away from them, and he prays this prayer. In verse 42, he says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the cup in the Old Testament was used as a way of talking about suffering um, or God's judgment. And Jesus knows he's about to drink a cup of suffering. But more importantly, he's going to drink the cup of God's judgment and wrath. And do you remember, if you recall from last week, what the event that the Passover celebrated. It celebrates and remembers when God goes through Egypt and he brings death to every household in Egypt, except for the houses 
with the blood of the lamb spread across their doorpost. God passed over those houses and they were spared from death. But a lamb died in their place. And Jesus says, I am like that lamb. Jesus' death is going to save others from death. Because he dies, other people are going to be spared from death. He's going to drink the cup of God's judgment for sin so that others don't have to drink that cup. He's drinking in other people's place. And this cup is Jesus' half dome. It's filled with all the poison and the curse and death of sin. It's filled with the alienation and estrangement and separation that sin brings. It's filled with all the guilt and shame and condemnation that comes with rebelling against God. It's filled with everything humanity deserves for our refusal to follow God's ways. And standing at the base of this cup, Jesus is in distress and in agony. The thought of drinking all that is deserved for our sin makes him shudder. And it should make us shudder as well to think of what Jesus went through for us. And if you're a follower of Christ here today, if you've trusted in Him and surrendered your life to Him as your Lord and Savior, then you'll never have to drink that cup, even though you should have to drink it. Jesus drank it in your place that you wouldn't have to. If you, and if, we have, if somebody hasn't trusted in Jesus, if you know people haven't trusted in Jesus, or if you know, you, the prospect of drinking that cup of judgment for their sin should make us shudder in terror, and it should make them shudder in terror and fill us with agony. Because God wrath, God's wrath and judgment remains on anyone who hasn't surrendered their life to Jesus. But if you have, then Jesus has drank the cup that we deserve to drink for all of our sin and all of our rebellion. That's the consequence of it. And as Jesus prays, this angel is sent to him from heaven in order to strengthen him. And in agony, he's continuing to pray, and he breaks into this heavy sweat and then he goes back to his disciples. He finds them, that they're asleep. He's like, I told you guys to pray, and now you're asleep. But the reality of Jesus' death, it says they're asleep for sorrow. The reality of Jesus' death has finally hit them. But Jesus knows they need God more than sleep. And so he again exhorts them to pray. But as he says this, a crowd led by Judas approaches. The moment of betrayal has come, and Judas does it in the most awful way. He greets Jesus with a kiss, which was a way of showing respect and friendship to somebody. He's about to betray him. And Jesus' disciples jump to defend Jesus. And one cuts off the high priest's ear. But Jesus puts an end to it. He says, enough of this. And then he heals the, the servant's ear. And so Jesus is willing to heal someone who's come out in the middle of the night to arrest him and eventually put him to death. He knows what this guy's here for, but he heals his ear anyway. And then he addresses the crowd. I've been teaching you all week in broad daylight, in the temple, and you didn't arrest me then, but, but now you're coming out secretly in the middle of the night to arrest me like I'm a criminal? They know what they're doing is shady because they're doing it secretly and at night, and Jesus knows it too, and he says to him, them, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus recognizes for the time being, it looks like evil and darkness are having their way, that they're in control, but Jesus knows that God is the one who's in control because he submits to his will and he knows that his death is to rescue other people from death. And so we've seen what Jesus does when the going gets tough. He goes to God in prayer and surrenders to his will and he receives strength. And even when others act rashly to defend him, he puts a stop to it and undoes the damage by healing the servant's ear. And so next let's see what Peter does when the going gets tough. After Jesus is arrested, He's taken to the house of the high priest. And this would be a bigger house that, um, and the bigger houses in that day, because he's the high priest, and he's leading a lot of stuff in Israel, so he would have had a nicer, bigger house. And it would kind of be like a donut, not round like a donut, but, you know, there'd be a courtyard in the middle, you know, there's a donut hole, 
and that would be a courtyard, and the house would surround it. And so the, the bunch of people who were out, um, the servants and the temple guards, who went out in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus, they start a fire in that courtyard as Jesus is brought into the house. And then Peter, um, he follows Jesus to the high priest's house, and his other people are around the fire to keep warm in the, uh, in the um, coolness of Jerusalem's mid-spring night. Peter comes and joins them and tries to blend in because he wants to, I want to know what's going to happen, what's going to happen here. Then a servant girl sees Peter's face in the light of the fire, and she tries, she tries to place how she knows him. It says she stares at him, and then it hits her. This man was also with him, she says. And Peter responds, Woman, I do not know him. A little while later, someone else sees him and points the figure, saying, You also are one of them. And again, Peter denies it. Man, I am not. And then an hour passes. Peter, oh, maybe, maybe people have kind of forgotten about me. Maybe I blended in enough. An hour passes, and then... In, Jesus, he's being held in custody, he's being questioned. And then someone else recognizes Peter and says, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Jesus is from the region of Galilee, and so is Peter. And people often recognize people from Galilee uh, by their accents. And so this guy recognizes Peter for his accent. And he says, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And at that very moment, before Peter could finish his sentence, the rooster crowed. At this point, Jesus he's in, doesn't say where he's at, but he's in some place where he has a direct line of sight to Peter. And Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. And as Peter makes eye contact with his Lord, the one who he has said, you're my Lord, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's sent by God to save us, he makes eye contact with him. And he just denied him these three times. And he remembers what Jesus said to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, as we read last week in our passage. And at this, he leaves the courtyard and weeps bitterly. The going got tough, and Peter fell into temptation, the same temptation that Jesus warned him about. And meanwhile, the passage says that as the night drags on, verses 63 through 65 tell us that those who are holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. They, they blindfolded him and said, Prophesy, tell us who's the one hitting you. You know, if you're really a prophet, you should be able to tell us who's hitting you without even being able to see him. They want him to prove you're a prophet um, like you've been saying you are. And the irony is that the fact that Jesus is being mocked proves he is a prophet because he predicted that this very thing would happen. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be mocked. And I'm going I'm to die. And so his prediction has come true. And throughout the night, they blasphemed him and disrespected and dishonored the king whom God sent to rescue them. There's a big difference between how Peter and Jesus respond when the going gets tough. And so what does all this mean for us? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. But what if you don't feel tough? What if you actually feel the opposite of tough? What if you feel weak and needy and unable to go on? What if you've already been hiking for six miles and you're looking at the path ahead and you don't know if you can handle it? What do you do then? So here's where the pens I had asked you to grab comes in. Grab the pens. You, uh, grab a bulletin and a pen. I already have one. And write these four words on it. Write these words on it. Exhausted. Scared. Failing. Wandering. Exhausted, scared, failing, wandering. Now circle the ones that describe a feeling you've had in the past month. 
Exhausted, scared, failing, and wandering. Circle multiple. Maybe I'll just put a big circle around all of them. <clears throat> so circle the ones that describe a feeling you've had this past month. Now put a <coughs> box around the one you're feeling right now. If there is one. Maybe you're in a good place and so you're not feeling any of them. But put a box around the one you're feeling right now. The big question this passage answers is, when the going gets tough, what should the weak do? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. But what if you're weak? So what should the weak do? And the simple answer is this. Depend on God. When the going gets tough, what should the weak do? They should depend on God. But let's answer it more specifically using those four words you wrote on your bulletin. So first, when the going gets tough, what should the exhausted do? When the going gets tough, what should the exhausted do? The uh, exhausted should depend on God's strength to keep you on the path. The exhausted should depend on God's strength to keep you on the path. The exhausted should, keep, should depend on God's strength to keep you on the path. When Katie and I were hiking Half Dome, we had moments where we were simply exhausted. And standing at the base of Half Dome, like, man, this is only like 400 feet, but this is going to be really tough. We wondered if we'd really be able to pull ourselves up those cables all the way to the top, you know, 45-degree angle, sometimes 60-degree angle. And perhaps that's where some of you are at. Life has you exhausted. Work is tiring. Raising kids is tiring. Sickness is tiring. Commuting is tiring. Fixing broken cars and broken houses is tiring. And you're tired, and when you look at the path before you, you don't know if you can keep going. It requires strength that you don't have. And as Jesus stood at the base of his half-dome, base of that mountain. He knew he needed strength he didn't have, and so he went to God in prayer. And what did God do? He sent an angel to strengthen him. And I don't think the angel just came and just zapped Jesus with some strength. The word angel means messenger. And so perhaps the angel came to remind Jesus of his father's love for him and his presence with him. Perhaps the angel came to remind him of the salvation his death would accomplish. Or, or maybe the angel just came so he wouldn't be alone. Suffering can feel lonely. Does anybody get what I'm going through? And the disciples aren't really getting what he's going through. And even if they were, they fell asleep for their own sorrow, so they're not praying with Jesus like he asked them to do. And the angel is maybe the only one in that garden who really gets what Jesus is about to go through. And as we talked, as Nick and Larry and I talked in our Gospel Fluency group this week, Larry points out that we have something better than angels. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And God will use the Spirit to remind you of his love and of his presence with you. But he'll also send other people into your life who have the Holy Spirit as well. And they can sit with you and comfort you and remind you of those same truths. Like, I know this is hard. I know this. You don't know if you can keep going. But remember, God is with you and he loves you. And those assurances can strengthen us when we feel alone and we can get assured by the Holy Spirit or by others who have the Holy Spirit that God is with us and we're not alone. Jesus shows us that when we feel weak and exhausted, we need to depend on God's strength. We need to go for him for the strength that we don't have. And Jesus brings his emotions and he brings his struggles to God. And you can do that too. When you don't think you can go on, God will give you the power to keep on the path. But the problem is we so often believe that we need to find the strength in ourselves for the path ahead. Or we try to find the strength in other places. Um, something that... Both Larry and Nick pointed out in our gospel fluency group was that Jesus goes to God and he tells the disciples to go to God, um, but then they go to sleep. He says, we need to go to God, and they go to sleep. 
Um, they think that sleep will be better for them at that time um, than prayer. And sometimes a good nap is what we need. Like we need sleep. God built us um, as creatures who need sleep. And so sometimes it's something um, we need to do. But they choose sleep instead of prayer, even though Jesus is saying, you need to go to God in prayer for this. And we can easily try to find strength and comfort and rest everywhere except for the best source of it, which is God himself. So take a moment and just write down an area where you feel exhausted and need to depend on God's strength. Maybe it's kids, maybe it's work, maybe it's you know, money, maybe it's, I, I don't know what it is. Just write you know, one word down of a place you need to depend on God's strength because you feel exhausted. So that's the first. Second, when the going gets tough, what should the scared do? When the going gets tough, what should the scared do? And the scared should depend on God's goodness to keep you on the path. The scared should depend on God's goodness to keep you on the path. So depend on God's goodness when you're scared. And standing at the base of Half Dome with its 60 degree angle uh, and just pure rock and you know, no trees, it's just rock. And then you have to get up this thing somehow, you're holding onto these cables. It looked pretty scary. And Jessie, the girl I said who fell into the bear propaganda, um, she uh, started hiking with us. We got 20 feet up and she said, I'm not doing this. See you guys later. And she like, it was like this weird thing where we were like being abandoned by her. When she was like, she's like, I'm going back. Find me on Facebook. And she said her name and it was like, she's trailing away. And we're like, oh, Jessie's gone. I guess we're just going after this alone. Um, but when the angle got really steep, um, Katie also got scared. She got really scared, didn't know if she could do it. And she, I was encouraging her, like, you're doing so great. I asked her if I could share this. I was like, you're doing so great. You can, you've gotten so far, you can do this. She said, I'm mad at you right now. Like, oh, <laughs> is this the best time? <laughs> We're on this you know, rock angle. But she wasn't mad at me. She just needed somewhere to put that negative energy. <laughs> but, um, but maybe many people push through their fear. There's lots of people that get to the base of Half Dome. They get you know, six miles up, almost seven miles, and they get to that base. They have, you have 400 feet to go to get to the top and see an awesome view, and they say, nope, and they turn around. There's plenty. Jesse had done that once before. She said, I got to the base once, and I was scared, and I couldn't get up it, and I'm going to do it this time. And once, So she's hiked however many, to almost 14 miles twice, and she didn't make it to the top. Uh, but many people push through because they know what awaits them at the top. It's this beautiful view that just takes your breath away. But the problem is, while we're going through that scary part, none of us can see the beautiful view. It's just rock. That's what you're looking at, rock. I'm holding on these cables, trying to make it up this thing. My arms hurt, my legs hurt, and I'm just staring at rocks. I don't see any of this beautiful view. We just had to trust that it was there. And as Jesus looked down this path, he saw this cup of suffering and judgment he was about to drink on behalf of all humanity to save us from that same fate. And so he went to God and asked, is it possible to take this this cup away. Is there any other way to do this? But he also said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus surrendered himself to God's will. He surrendered himself to God's path for him. And there's going to be many times in life when the path we're on is scary, or what we see coming on the path is scary. Or we might be just scared that we have no idea what's coming. I don't know what's up there, and so that's scary to me too. If only we knew we could control it and plan it, but when life is scary, we need to trust that God's will for our life is the best plan for our lives. The path may be scary. We may not be able to see the beautiful, breathtaking view to where God is leading us, but we need to trust that he is leading us there. He's leading us to a good place because he's a good 
God. And that's why we need to depend on His goodness. And as Katie and I, um, we've been really challenged by this as we've walked the path of infertility and adoption. You guys all know this. We've shared this. But we both fully believe that God is powerful enough to make us pregnant and give us a baby. We both know, fully believe God is powerful enough to make a sex, successful adoption happen. And so the question is, why didn't he? Why didn't he allow us to get pregnant? Why didn't he make our adoption last fall end with success? Why did he let us go through such pain and hardship? Why did it end with empty arms and aching hearts? And the lie that we've had to fight, and that's so easy to believe, is that if God's powerful enough to stop the bad things from happening, and he doesn't, well, then he must not be a very good God. He must not be a very good Father. He must not care very much about our desires and our wants and what we're going through. When the path is scary and, and painful and difficult, we need to believe that God's plan for us is better than our own. We need to believe that even if God never gives us what we want him to give us, that his plan for our life is better than our plan for our life. And the truth is God cares about you more than you care about you. That's hard to believe sometimes. And we need to trust that God's version of our life is the best version of our life. We need to trust that what God wants to do with our life is better than what we want to do with our life. The best version of your life is the version where you have the most of God. And so he'll do whatever it takes to give you more of him. And that might mean giving you less of other things. And even when the path is scary and all we're doing is staring at the face of the 60 degree rock surface in front of us and we're climbing up and we're seeing like how much more is left to go? I just can't even see the end of it. We need to trust that there's a grand vista at the top and it may not be the vista we thought or that we wished for but it's the vista that we truly need. So take a moment and write down an area where you feel scared and need to depend on God's goodness. I'm scared of what's ahead, but I trust you, God, that you're good and you're in control and you have a good plan for me. Third, when the going gets tough, what should those who've failed do? When the going gets tough, what should those who've failed do? And those who've failed should depend on God's grace put you back on the path. Those who failed should depend on God's grace to put you back on the path. Depend on God's grace. Katie and I made it up to the top of Half Dome and back, but what if we hadn't? What if we were like Jesse and were too scared, so we turned back? And Jesus knew full well that Peter was going to get too scared and he was going to turn his back on Jesus. Jesus is at Half Dome. He's at the base and he says, I'm going to have to climb up this and you guys need to pray if you want to follow me up this. I mean, they're not going to die for humanity's sins, but he's saying, like, you need to die to yourselves and you need to follow me up this into this scary place. But Jesus knows that Peter's going to turn his back on him. Yet Jesus prayed for him and he told Peter that um, he would be restored and he would actually come back and strengthen the rest of the disciples. Whenever we watch, Katie and I watch movies based on true stories, um, Katie loves seeing the little comments at the end about where are people at today, you know, based on a true story. And at the end, it's like, you know, so-and-so, they got married. She always wants them to get married and have babies. So she's like, did they get married and have babies? And like, what? Well, they didn't tell us, you know, if the movie just ends. But it's, you know, this little picture of like, here's so-and-so after the war. And like, here's what they went on, went on to do, like the black screen. And they kind of described that. So let's do that for Peter. The screen's black. The movie's ended. We've seen Peter Jesus, And now we're going to get these little details coming in. We get them from John's Gospel that tell us that after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to his disciples a number of times, 
And on one of the occasions, several of the disciples, including Peter, they're they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And nighttime was the best time for fishing, but they fish all night and they don't catch anything. As the sun is getting close to rising, um, all of a sudden Jesus shows up on the shore, but they don't recognize him. He says, throw it on the other side of the boat. They've been fishing on this side of the boat with their nets. He's like, throw it on the other side. And all of a sudden they get this huge catch, and all of a sudden Peter realizes, it's the Lord. And so before they even like, get the boat to shore, it's like he like, pulls up his, his clothes, and he jumps in the water and swims to shore, and he finds Jesus there. And then um, he's, Jesus has started a fire. And then all the other disciples, they get to shore with the boat, and Jesus says, bring some of the fish, and he cooks some breakfast, and they're sitting around. And it says none of them dared to ask, oh, ask him, are you Jesus? Like, there's something, there's interest, this interesting thing when Jesus is resurrected. Like, people, like, sometimes they recognize him, sometimes not, because he has this resurrection body, a new body, and yet there's things that are the same, and there's things that kind of make it so people don't quite recognize it. So none of them, like, dared to confirm it. It just says they all knew, and so they're sitting there on breakfast. kind of seems like they're all just eating, you're eating with Jesus again. But after a while, Jesus asked Peter a question. He says, do you love me? Yes, Peter answered. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus asked him again, do you love me? Peter answered, yes. Jesus said, tend my sheep. Jesus asked a third time, do you love me? Peter answered, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's around a fire near the break of day that Peter denied Jesus three times. Now around a fire near the break of day, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him, and he gives him a job. Take care of the other disciples. You see, Jesus died for failures like Peter. Jesus died for failures like you and like me. And our love for Jesus is going to be tested, and sometimes we aren't going to act like we love him at all. We're going to have moments and days and weeks when our lives look nothing like someone who loves Jesus. But if we were able to be perfect, then Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. And the problem is that we believe our failures are greater than God's grace. We believe that our sin, our guilt, our shame is more than God can handle. And if you're in that place, you need to believe the good news that God's grace is greater than all your failures, all your sin, all your weakness, all your guilt, all your shame. Jesus died for failures. So don't let your failures and your sin define you, but let God's grace define you. What he says about you, if you trust in him, what he says about you is true, and none of that stuff from the past defines you anymore. And so take a moment and write down an area where you feel like you're failing and need to depend on God's grace. What's an area where you're failing, where you just feel like you're blowing it, and you need to depend on God's grace? Fourth, when the going gets tough, what should the wandering do? When the going gets tough, what should the wandering do? That song we sang last week, Come Thou Found, says, We're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So what should the wandering do? The wandering should depend on God's compassion to keep you on the path. Depend on God's compassion to keep you on the path. There was only one way to get up Half Dome. You had to hold on to the metal cables and pull yourself up this steep rock face. And everyone says, Eddie, all the signs and all the you know, rangers say, do not leave the cables. You have to stay on these cables. Don't go trying to get this awesome view for your selfie. Don't go exploring because this is like, I mean, if you, 45 degree angle, you start tumbling down that, you're not stopping until you're at the bottom um, and that's not going to be a good day for you. Um, probably your last day. 
Uh, and so um, they say, don't go outside these. It's going to be dangerous. You're not supposed to, and you're not supposed to climb up on bad weather because it's a 5,000 foot elevation gain. I don't know how far it is above sea level, but um, you don't go up in bad weather when it's raining because you're holding on to metal cables with no other trees around. So you're basically like a human lightning rod, um, and you're anybody connected with there, you all you're all going to get zapped, and you're just going to be laying up there fried for the rest of your life. Um, and you're trying to slip, get up the smooth rock surface while it's all wet. And there's been a handful of people who've died climbing a path dome, um, but all of them died when the cables were down um, or when it was bad weather. There's only one person who died when it was good weather and the cables were up, um, but no one knows what happened because he was alone. But the point is, if you go off the path that God has, it's like there's danger out there. That's not where you're supposed to be. And sometimes we're like Peter. We wander off the path and we get ourselves into trouble. And we get ourselves into dangerous situations by not listening to God's guidance. And so when we get out there, we need to be rescued and restored. Like there's been lots of people that need to be saved up, up on these big hikes because like I've got into a bad place and now I have to, you know, I've broken my ankle or I've done something that hurt me and now people have to come in and save them. And the book of Hebrews, um, well, Jesus knows, I should say first, Jesus knows what it feels like to be tempted to leave the path. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet he was without sin. He never left the path. In this passage, we see Jesus is struggling with the tough road ahead, and he's wondering if there is another way. And so you're not alone in your struggle to stay on the path. Jesus knows it's hard. Jesus knows there's pressure. Jesus knows what it feels like to have Satan fighting against you. Jesus knows what it's like to stand at the base of a tough climb and wonder if you can do it. And that means Jesus can empathize with you and show you compassion. He can feel from his gut this kind of... The word compassion is like you feel it in your gut, like this feeling of like, man, I just, my heart goes out for them. And so Jesus can, he can really feel it. And he's still 100% human, 100% God today. And so he can, he knows what it feels like. God took on flesh and now he can really say, I know how you feel. I have felt it too. But so often we believe that God has no compassion or tenderness towards us. He's just a rule enforcer. Suck it up. Get with the program. If you've wandered off, that's your problem. Fix it. And we just, God has like no tenderness towards us, no compassion. That's what we can often believe. But you can see God's tenderness and how he meets Jesus by sending an angel. And he's, have, he's in agony. He's saying, God, is there another way? And he doesn't, he's just on his knees and God meets him in that moment. And you can also see God's tenderness, compassion, how Jesus meets Peter in his moment of struggle. He's denied Jesus to his face. Like Jesus saw him do it. It's not even like behind his back. It's just, and it was like a couple hours earlier, Peter is saying like, Jesus, I'll follow you to prison, even to death. A couple hours later, I don't, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, and then Jesus says, you know, but I'm, do you love me? He, he knows that his, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak in that moment. He's like, do you love me? He like restores him back and says, you're going to lead the other disciples. And take, so take a moment, write down an area where you feel like you're wandering I don't know what God's path is. I don't even know if I'm on it. I don't know where I'm going. I haven't, don't feel purpose. I don't feel God's will in my life. What's an area where you're wandering and you need to depend on God's compassion to keep you on the path? Because sometimes when we leave the path because we're like, I'm just wandering and nobody really cares if I'm here or not. God doesn't care. He doesn't see me. And he just kind of wants me to get my act together. But it can help us to get back on the path or keep on the path when we know, no, God sees us and he cares and he wants to bring us back and he's not just saying suck it up and get it make it happen he's saying like i want to bring you back 
As we climbed the trail to Half Dome, we met many people along the way. The birthday girl turning 50, Jesse, the mother-son duel, the Brazilian sisters. And even though we were strangers, we formed this weird bond with them. We, we, did I say even though we're sisters? Even though we're strangers? Even though we're strangers, we formed this weird bond with them. And then we encouraged each other to keep going when we were tired or were scared. And we felt like we couldn't do it. Like, I, I don't know how long. I probably spent... 30 minutes or 40 minutes searching for Jessie on Facebook. We knew Jessie, and when she was leaving, we heard this trailing off of her last name. We're like, no, how are we going to find her? It's like, we spent an hour with her. Why did I want to be friends with this person on Facebook? We felt like we had this bonding moment of like trying to conquer this thing together. And we also were hoping, all these people we met were like, oh, I hope they make it to the top as we're going up. Like, oh, I hope we see birthday girl. Oh, I hope we see, you know, and so-and-so up there. That they make it, could they please make it? And then we got there, we celebrated. Hey, you made it! Like, we all made it together. In a life, the going is going to get tough. Going will get tough. We'll feel pressure and temptation to leave the path or turn back. And in those moments, we need other people on the journey with us. We can't do it alone. We need to live as family, bearing one another's burdens and keeping each other on the path when the going gets tough. And so this week, we wrote down all those things. Invite someone into your burdens. We wrote down those areas of our life where we feel exhausted or scared or we're failing or we're wandering. Invite someone into those and ask them to pray for you. Like, here's what's going on. I'm just feeling, you know, use one of those words. You know, everyone sitting here knows the exact words um, that from today have been defined. We all felt it. It's like, I'm feeling exhausted. Like, here's what's going on. Please pray for me. If you're in a gospel fluency group, share it with them this week. And if you aren't in one, just get together with someone this week or call someone and, and ask for help. Don't try to handle this all on your own because we need to, to go up the path um, and climb those hard times together. And as we close, just think of the people God has put in your life. Do you know someone who's exhausted? Do you know someone who's scared? Do you know someone who feels like a failure? Do you know someone who's wandering, just doesn't feel like they seem like they have purpose or know where they're going? Write their name down now. Someone who's exhausted or someone who's scared and failing or who's wandering. You know somebody like that? Write their name down. And wouldn't it be good news for them to hear that God can meet them right in the middle of being exhausted, scared, failing, and wandering. They don't need to clean themselves up or get their act together. They just need to finally admit that they need God and cry out to Him. And that's the gospel, that God rescues exhausted, scared people who are failing and wandering when they call on Him. And He does it through Jesus. And during this final night of Jesus' life, that's what, I mean, we basically, in this month, we're covering 24 hours of Jesus' life. Um, the last 24 hours before he dies, and then we're covering his resurrection. And during this last night of his life, he faces the power of darkness, he says, that betrays him and arrests him and denies him and mocks him. And it seems like the power of darkness has won. And as he stood before his half dome, he went to God for strength to carry the plan of salvation to the end. And he did it for you, he says, for each of us, for all of us. But this is, this is only the start of the climb because he knows drinking the cup of our judgment on the cross is coming. But this too he will do for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus' wonderful example of going to you um, for strength, um, for help to stay on the path when he looked at it and just said, man, I don't, I don't want to do this. This looks really hard. Um, thank you for his love for us, um, his love for you, that he was willing to lay down his life um, for us, 
um, and for you to follow your will and to bring you glory. Would you help each of us do that too, Lord? But first, would you let this seed of truth be planted in our hearts and would you let it grow um, and bear fruit and give us life and strength? Um, would you help us to, to lay down our lives, to die to ourselves just like Jesus did? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.